Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. We have hot takes today. Let's get into them, guys. All right, first one. FKTs without a film crew are just KOMs. Hannah, how's it going? (laughs) Hi. (laughs) You did an FKT. Yeah, I feel like this is personally trying to attack me. (laughs) (laughs) You did an FKT for the whole enchilada, and you had a film crew. And yes. we love that. It's okay. Don't feel yeah. attacked. <laughs> can we How'd go, go into that more? Yeah, like, can yeah. you, yeah, we should, we should, because the video is awesome, first of all, and hopefully we can show some of that on screen. Uh, Maxine, our, our awesome producer, will uh, put that in post when we talk about this. And, and but like, I say we get into the nerdy details, uh, if you don't mind sharing such nerdy details, Hannah. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it, because that was something that this is, an FKT was such a different experience for me because I'm so used to racing and racing to win. And when you race to win, you don't necessarily get to pace the way you want to. You just have to stay in the front group no matter what. And so it was a really unique experience to actually go out there and think, what's the way that I can do this the fastest with little to no outside variables? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, welcome to racing as an amateur when you're not good enough to hold with the front group. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, first of all, what's what's FKT? We should talk about that uh, because some people listening might not know. Yeah, FKT is the fastest known time. Um, so focus on the word known. So it's just the fastest time that we know of for a specific route. So you might, some people might even equate this to a Strava QOM or KOM and FKTs oftentimes a little bit of a longer route though, than just those small segments. So I wanted to create the fastest known time for the whole enchilada, the climb and descent. So it was just over 55 miles and it had just over 8,000 feet of climbing and 7,000 feet of those climbing came in a single push. Sheesh. <laughs> Holy cow. And, and that's, uh, the whole enchilada is the trail, really famous trail. In but Moab, you, most Utah. People, yeah. Most people <clears throat> shuttle up to the top though. So like, <laughs> they take a van to the top and then you ride. And honestly, even then riding just down the down part, like you're pretty worked at the end of it. It's a because proper it's, day, just riding yeah. down. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a decent Yeah, ride. Keegan, you shuttle yeah. it, right? Just kidding. <laughs> I've, I've shuttled it. I think I've done it twice. Yeah. Nice. It's it's hard. Like, yeah. like physically speaking, it's not just pure descending. You're definitely, it's not chill descending at all. Um, it's like there are sections that are chill, but it, the majority of it, there's so much chunk. It's, yeah. it's rough. Yeah. It's very chunky. It's a lot of sort of step up. So you're lifting your front wheel over things, even when you're going downhill. It's also, it's desert terrain. So it's really harsh on your equipment as well. So you have to make a lot of smart choices and it's a really long descent. It's 25 miles of descending. And so when you think about that, it's, um, you're not going to know every single line. And a lot of those lines come as a surprise because you can't see them till you're on top of them. And so I pre-wrote it several times to know as many of those as possible, but still it was a big exercise in constant adaptation. Yeah. It's kind of hard to right, Keegan in a lot of those sections. Cause it's not a single track and like there's huge sections yeah, of I mean, it that are really, some really of it's wide. Like, I mean, some of it's like Jeep trail almost, you know, it's wide and you can like, there's different lines you can cut across. You can, I don't know. It's, 
you definitely can't, like Hannah said, you can't memorize the whole thing. That's kind of the beauty of it too, as an FKT is like, you have to just kind of like figure it out on the fly. And there's definitely some key sections where it's good to have pre-written and kind of know which way you want to go. Like there's like the, the snotch and the notch and some other places where you're like, oh, I need to make sure I go this way and not that way or whatever. But, um, yeah, for the most part, it's, I mean, it's just chunky, fast desert terrain. It's a pretty, yeah, it's pretty gnarly. It's something that I've, it's when, I, when Hannah, I saw Hannah did, I was like, man, that's really cool. I was like, been like thinking about it. It's such a cool FKT because you have that long road climb and you have like super chunky, gnarly descending. So like the equipment choice is huge, you know, it's what tires and pressure and inserts and, um, so and which bike, cool, right? Yeah. Like you have to compromise in some way. And you're going to compromise it. You're never, you're never going to have the perfect equipment, which is cool. It's most of these FKTs that have been done like white rim and Cocapelli and, some of these other ones, it's all like relatively easy terrain, you know, like Jeff couldn't go ride whole enchilada on his drop bar bike. I mean, he probably could, but it wouldn't be very good. So I think <laughs> it's cool to have like a real mountain bike FKT, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that balance, because you want to be as light as possible going up the climb, but you're starting up the climb. So you're carrying the most water then. And right. you also have the descent. So you need a little bit burlier equipment. It was pretty funny in my I pre-rode it several times leading up to it, but I shuttled for those pre-rides. So the first few times I used my Firebird, so an enduro bike to actually get used to the train and get confident on it. And then when Mm -hmm. I showed up to the shuttle on my Mach 4, so my cross-country bike, you could tell everyone was just looking over like, who is this girl and what does she think she's doing? (laughs) You probably dropped them too. I bet they had like 170 mil enduro bikes and you dropped them. (laughs) I always feel so bad riding that trail on a cross country bike too. You're like, oh, this poor bike. It's just so deep right now. (laughs) It's rough, man. And the hard thing too in those Jeep trail sections is you think you're on a good line, but it's kind of like, it it kind of like rolls and has these crests like Mm -hmm. over and over. And you get to spots where you're like, yeah, okay, like it's cresting again. But then you realize like, oh, it's actually like a legitimate four foot drop. Mm-hmm. And if I was 20 yards to the left or right, I'd have like an, a decent path going down, like still chunky, <clears throat> but not this big drop. Mm-hmm. So I like also- the first time I rode it, I was, I came, I had to get off my bike a couple of times and be like, no, I got to change my line here because I'm on an XC bike. I can't take a four foot drop into more chunder. Like I need to go over and find right. that better route. It's, it's a really, really tricky. And there's sections of course that are really tight single track, but those really broad sections are really hard, really hard. Yeah. And I like that you said dropping into more chunder. Cause that was a huge focus of mine is there's a lot of drops where you'd come up to them and you're like, Oh yeah, I can drop this. And then you'd see uh, you're dropping onto a rock. That's just pointed straight up <laughs> to destroy your tires. And you have to be super intentional to, you know, a flat or, or a mechanical is going to be the slowest possible thing you can do out there. Uh, what did you choose for tires and did you run inserts and what pressure did you run? Yeah, I ran, uh, I ran Kenda booster SCT 2.4s and I started with, uh, 1920 PSI. So higher pressure. Um, mm-hmm. and I ran a cush core in the rear. And then I guess as you go up in elevation, that would mean that your pressure would go up. Mm-hmm. I bet it was I like think, 23 yeah. at the top. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've played yeah. around a lot with pressures and temperatures and elevation. And it makes a huge difference. Even just temperature. I mean, it can check fluctuate like five PSI. Yeah. Yeah. And that was at the top, it was like 38 degrees, but at the bottom when I finished, it was almost 80. 
Wow. Yeah, and a huge you, you temperature kind of, swing. You like have to run more pressure though if you're going for an FKT in this scenario. Like I, I, oh, I yeah. love running low pressure, but there's no way on that trail I would run the typical pressures that I would on like an XCO course. No way. Mm-hmm. No. How much? Longer. Yes, I mean, because you're probably somewhere around 25 psi. I bet at the end um, with that sort of like pressure and the temperature change and everything else. Um, yeah, probably, that's, that's which good. I would never run that in an XCO, but it was just. It's all weighing cost benefit. Just, yeah, and yeah. it's hard to know. And that's something I think is really fun and exciting is I didn't have any mechanicals. So for me at this point, I wouldn't change a single thing. But I mm-hmm. really hope other people go out and try different things so we can learn and see where the risk reward weighs out. I'm, I'm not like a big Moab fan. Like it's, if I'm going to go on a mountain bike vacation, I'd probably just stop short in St. George and pick that instead of Moab or I go to Northern Utah, like park city is amazing. Um, but this is one that I really want to do. I want to do the whole loop because I've done what does they call it? Like UPS or whatever, like partway mm-hmm. down. Like I've, I've ridden from town to UPS and down. I've done that, but I've never, I've never done the whole enchilada from the top. So that's oh, so cool. Like I think, yeah. That's I the just, coolest I love part. That you started yeah. that, going through the different eco zones, through the aspens, mm-hmm. and then through the desert, and yeah, that's one of the like. It's, there's not really any other place in the world you can do that kind of riding. Like Tucson has a little bit, but you still don't change quite as drastically. Yeah. So I, I, this I, this is on my list, Hannah. I want to go and and do this route. I don't think I'll get close to your FKT, <laughs> but I want to go and do this route. It looks like super fun. What do you do in terms of power? Uh, it's a lot of elevation change. What four thousand ish feet in Moab, forty five hundred maybe. I don't know. Yeah, how high it, it started just a hair over four thousand feet, and then it topped out um, just under eleven thousand two hundred feet. Jeez. So, what was? How'd you pace that? Once again, you said you you could actually choose to pace instead of racing people. Yeah. So when I started, I I had a big range, um, and so I wanted my goal for the climb was to hold between 208 and 225 watts for that entire, I thought it was going to be a three hour climb and that's just where I'd never climbed it before. So it was hard for me to know exactly based on conditions, et cetera. And it was a little muddy. So it ended up being three and a half hours of climbing, but that was sort of the range that I set for myself. So when I started, Um, I was at the upper end of that range. I was feeling good on the day. And then I definitely declined throughout, but it was a really mind boggling experience because I was trying to calculate even as I was going, am I declining proportionally to the elevation or am I declining due to fatigue and exhaustion? Um, Mm. and to be honest, it's probably a small amount of both, and so that was yeah. a really unique experience as well. Uh, what, what sort of percentage of FTP would that be for you roughly? Or do you know what your FTP was on that day roughly where you'd be at? Um, yeah, I'd have to think about the percentage. So that's about 0.85. 0.85. Perfect. Yeah. yeah makes sense. Right. For that sort <laughs> of effort. So you'd want to hold. And then, uh, going down, did you focus on like, since you were descending, were you sprinting when you had opportunities to pedal? Cause there's tons of them on that trail. It's not like, like you said, even though it's 25 miles of descending, there's lots of pedaling. Were you still trying to kind of pace yourself on those efforts or was it just all out and just gassing yourself anytime you had a chance to pedal on the descent? 
I didn't really think about the pacing on the descent because two things. I felt like it really determined my pace for me because a lot of those hard a lot of the climbs on the descent are really technical climbs. And so even if I wanted to pace it, I'm doing a lot of power moves that are three, four, 500 plus watts just to lift my front wheel and pull myself over something. Also, what was more important to me on the descent on those climbs than pacing was eating. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the descent, I could not take a hand off the bars, even to grab the hose on my hydration pack. And so if I made the rule to myself on the climb, I ate every 20 minutes on the way up. On the descent, I ate any time it pointed uphill. And so sometimes that was eating something five minutes apart. And sometimes it was stretching 30 or 40 minutes. Um, So the nutrition definitely became more sporadic on the descent. But that was the best I could make sense of it because there are some places you just simply could not eat. That's super hard on rough descents, right? It's super, and with one that long, it's easy to get to the point where you're deprived. It's super cool. Everyone should go check it out. Um, I King, are you inspired? To go to- <laughs> I am. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds really <Yes>. fun. <laughs> and, I already and- messaged Keegan on Instagram and said I'm counting on him to take my time. So I'm planning on it. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's sort of noting. You don't just have the, you have the overall FKT for this. Like this is the fastest time recorded. This isn't the fastest women's time recorded. FKTs are often like divided by that. Um, but in this case it's the fastest time flat out. Super cool. Super impressive time. Yeah. Way to go. It's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. It was super no, fun. No offense, Keegan with your FKTs, but I think this is the coolest FKT I've heard of. So I agree. this one's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's such a cool trail to do it on. Uh, it's awesome. Cool. Sorry. We like went into, I know that ain't a hot take, but it was worth, I think it's worth us going into <laughs> yeah. it something super cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was great. Good job, Hannah. We're proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Should we right, share our, our opinions on this original hot take though? On that an FKT I, I, I without agree. a film crew is just a KOM. Yeah. I, I kind of agree. I don't yeah. know. I see both sides of it. Like, like I think sometimes people think you can push yourself further when you have a film crew because you have like a bit of a safety net. But I'd argue that like, I mean, maybe it's different, but for me, it doesn't really matter. Like when I, I did the white room both ways and the first time I did it, I didn't have any film crew or anyone. I just went and sent it. And then with the film crew, I think I took, I mean, I'd say the, I took the, the same amount of risk, you know, like I don't think it changed the way I rode. Um, it was nice knowing someone was out there because, you know, if I crash, there's no one knows. I mean, people know I'm out on the white rim, but it's a hundred mile loop. So I think, <laughs> I don't know, both sides, maybe it's probably like more individual, but I really don't think it matters. You know, it is, it is what it is. You just honor system. If you use them, then you shouldn't get the FKT. If you don't, then whatever. I want the film crew to be the downward facing GoPro, like in John's cryotherapy <laughs> video. Like sticking out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just right there on your face. <laughs> Just get a lot of yeah. nose in the shot. Yeah. yeah. So good. I, I, I think that it's just, um, there are examples of people lying about FKTs in the running world. Like, and they're like pretty oh, yeah. well publicized. And I think that a film crew kind of keeps you honest in some respects. Like, you're going to have a group Can't of, cheat. yeah, you're going to have how many people that are now going to be complicit in fabricating this lie? Like, I don't think they're all going to want to do that. And I think that it holds a level of accountability to something that has historically not always been treated with accountability. So 
I, I think the accountability is more important than the moral support. And granted, they're still fully self-supported. That needs to happen for it to be an mm-hmm. FKT. Like you can't mm-hmm. have your film crew helping you in any way. Like you can't draft off of them. You can't be taking bottles or, or doing any of that stuff. You can't even um, have them cheer you on. I think that's yeah. an important piece. Like the film crew that I had out there, they didn't say a single word to me after I started. Most of the time, I mean, there's places where I see footage and I'm like, well, I don't think I saw them there at all. Uh, so they shouldn't be a factor in your effort at all. But I do think it's really cool to be able to showcase it after, exactly like yeah, you're saying, because people who've never ridden some of these trails, there's just no way you can use the most colorful language possible and you still can't describe some of these vast landscapes. And so if anything, I hope that visually seeing it inspires more people to get to some of these locations. Well, even someone like me who has been writing for like 13 or 14 years now, like for both of your FKT videos, Hannah and Keegan, like I learned something new from like seeing your strategy and like nutrition strategy and like there's like so much to be learned. You don't do these film crew additions to your FKTs for people like us, but there's a lot to be said for what other people can learn for or be inspired from when we get to see it and like feel like we're part of it. And that's pretty cool. Mm. Okay, moving on. (laughs) 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 All right, next hot take. Um, Hot take that we should stop spending money on bikes and just train more. I think it's pretty valid. I mean, I think <laughs> if you want to get faster, you should train more. But if yeah, like getting new cool stuff makes you stoked to ride your bike, then you should do that. And obviously equipment does make you faster. Like nicer stuff is, it is better, but in the end it's like a smaller piece. Um, but yeah, I guess it depends on where you're at. If you're looking for that 1%, buy faster stuff. If you need to improve like 50%, then just ride more. Yeah. It depends upon your yeah. goals, right? Um, like if your goal is to, um, yeah, get that 1% or if you're a brand new cyclist, I think like we see a lot of new, new riders focus on stuff like that on equipment stuff. What do you think, John? Yeah. If, 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 well, this operates on the assumption that they're somehow mutually exclusive, that like, that there's like you, you either do one or the other. And I think that that isn't necessary. Uh, I say spend money on your bike, uh, but spend money on your bike where it makes a difference. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, if it's like Keegan said, like, I love when I get like something new that's really going to change my riding experience, man, I love that. Like, and that doesn't have to be an expensive thing. I remember when I switched to a pair of grips that I just absolutely loved, I was excited to go ride with my new grips. I know that (laughs) sounds weird, but it was like, because it actually improved my riding experience and spending a ton of money on something is it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it would change that. Uh, Sorry, I was just going to, one other thing I was going to say with this too is like, Um, some people feel that like, you know, you spend money on your bike so you don't have to train. And I just, I really disagree with that. Like, I think that the training should be separate from that and, and like training. Yes. Like we should all train more. Yeah. Uh, at least as long as it's not throwing the rest of our life out of whack. And as long as we're nourishing ourselves enough to do it, then yeah, a hundred percent train more. Mm -hmm. And the spending parts totally separate. Totally. And I'm super curious if this was the case for you. Was there ever a point early in your career where you had like a piece of equipment or an upgrade or something that you were like, yes, this is the thing for me. Like that's going to make the difference for me. <laughs> okay. I'll share when I, so when I was 
a triathlete when I first got into triathlon. So I'm nine, 10 years old at this point, <laughs> but I, I mean, my, none of, no one in my family did triathlon. So this was just a totally like, we have no idea what we're doing. And I had a mountain bike and I thought that was great. And it was a road triathlon and we didn't even really know hardly the difference. So when I showed up to this road triathlon with my mountain bike, I remember calling people with road bikes. Oh yeah. They have those skinny tire bikes. Um, (laughs) So yeah, when I switched over to the road bike, that was definitely a moment where it was like, Oh my gosh, this is so much faster, so much cooler. Obviously that's a really extreme example, but sometimes it can be something really big, like changing your whole bike. Um, and sometimes it can be something really small, like grips that make you excited to go out and hold on to the bars. Yeah, totally. Okay. It seems like we're on the same page. It's okay to spend money on your equipment, but it doesn't mean you don't have to train. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Hot take. There's nothing wrong with attacking in the feed zone. Keegan, I didn't even tell people that you were going to be on this episode. It's like they knew you were going to be here. No, go for it. I think it's fair game. If you want to attack in the feed zone and like blow your feed and risk not having enough hydration or whatever, do it. Is that your take for road racing also? I mean, yeah. (laughs) I really don't care what anyone anyone does. I think it's it's fine. I mean, there's definitely like, like – I think what goes around comes around too. So if you attack in the feed zone, then you should expect to either be attacked in the feed zone later or have something else done to you. Maybe someone's upset and they take you off the back in the group, or maybe you get chopped. I don't know. I think it's racing, so you can do whatever you want, but you should, you should, you can't expect everyone to be okay with it. And you should yeah. expect to, there's there to be some retaliation, which is fine. I, I think it's cool. So, so Keegan, like gravel racing is still fairly new as a discipline and the format of it is like ever changing and evolving. And a lot of our our listeners, I don't think have really been in a gravel race, especially at the pointy end where you're trying to decide if you should stop. So can you kind of just describe like what a gravel race feed zone looks like? Yeah. And I guess, I mean, in my mind at the gravel races where I've attacked in feed zones, it's not really (laughs) attacking. It's just not stopping. Right. You know, uh, so like SBT, which is where all the, the drama kicked off, like a couple of us started with, I started with two one liter bottles and then two liters in a pack. So I had four liters of fluid, which is a ton, Camel. it was like 10 pounds of weight. So I carried an extra 10 pounds and it sucked, you know, in order for me to not stop at the first few feed zones, because I knew they're just a cluster. Like there's people coming, there's only a few spigots, everyone's coming in, everyone wants fluid. So I'm like, well, I'm just not going to bother with that because I don't want to be stressed out about missing a bottle. Maybe someone, maybe they get in there first and they fill up, then they go. And is that, that's basically attacking the feed zone too, unless you wait for everyone. So I think, I don't know, I like you have to pick whether you're going to carry the weight and deal with carrying all that stuff and then risk, also you risk dropping a bottle too. So that's kind of where it's at in gravel races. Um, some have neutral handups, which is fine. It's like any other like road racing or mountain bike racing, in which case you can't really attack. I mean, like, sure you can ride faster out of the feed zone, but then you're just, you know, it's just dumb. So I think like, I'm not sure attacking is quite the right term. It's more just not either stopping or not stopping. Um, Right. Like I would never attack someone in a feed zone where you're grabbing bottles because that's just dumb and Mm -hmm. kind of like not very sportsman like, I guess. But if you're just not going to stop, then 
that's fine. So. Totally. Can I add a hot anyway. take to the hot take? Yes, please. Give it. Yeah. I'm, t- I'm tired of unspoken rules. It's either a rule or it's not. I feel yeah, like cycling is I one agree. of the only sports out there that has all these unspoken rules. I feel like most other sports, like, for example, team sports like soccer or football, it's either a rule or it's not. Imagine yeah. F1, right? Like, imagine if oh, Lewis Hamilton's pitting. Everybody, slow down. Like, <laughs> like, like NASCAR, I don't know, any other form of racing. Like, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't take place. And my personal opinion is that there isn't a single person that complains about this unless they are the ones that made the poor decision. So then what they do is they use this unwritten rule as justification for them to be upset because they made a poor decision. Like, mm-hmm. no, you just made a bad decision. Own it. And because if you don't own it, you're going to continue to blame the rules and never be better for it. So you need to step back. You need to realize what you did, the mistake you made, learn from it and improve. But if you keep blaming these unwritten rules, you're never going to get better. Like it's not a good way to improve. So I think people mm-hmm. aren't willing to recognize the fact how much pre thought and planning goes into a lot of these events. Like for example, Keegan decide making the decision that carrying 10 pounds of water or fluids is going to be faster than stopping at the feed zone. I'm guessing he didn't just blindly make that decision. He probably <laughs> calculated and calculated how much 10 extra pounds was going to slow him down and then estimated how long he'd have to stand in that line at the feed zone and made yeah. like a confident and really educated decision based on that. And it's definitely a bit of a gamble too. Like it's a lot of weight. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, that is. you have to weigh, you know, like you said, you have to weigh each side and see what makes the most sense. And maybe that wouldn't for a, li- a rider that's lighter than me, mm-hmm. maybe that wouldn't work, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, mm-hmm. different strategies. Good stuff. All right. Next one. Hot take. If you stop at a gas station during an endurance ride, you destroy all the benefits. Uh, <laughs> how long is your stop? <laughs> as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And how feed. many do you have? Attack the feed, <laughs> attack the gas station feeds us. <laughs> Beijing Keegan's coach, Jim Miller. This is like a pet peeve of his. Uh, yeah. Really? I mean, right? I try and carry as much water as I can on all my rides. I train with the one liter bottles a lot, so I don't have to stop every two hours or whatever. Um, I hate stopping anything less than like two or three hours into a ride. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a waste of time. I think at a certain point, you might as well just ride twice if you're going to stop for like half hour. So Sometimes I'll wear a pack on the road just so I don't have to stop. There you go. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. yeah. This is well, like this is something that akin with Jim here. Like we share the same thought that when you are doing particularly endurance work, And because endurance work becomes like exponentially more challenging on your body to be able to maintain the same power target. What feels easy in the beginning starts to feel hard at the end. And there's an increase in product and productivity of that work to give you aerobic adaptations as time goes on at that, at that same power target. So if you are the sort of rider that just like, you know, you're hitting stoplights all the time doing that sort of thing. That's why we say like, look, you can do your workouts outside, but if you're going to get constant interruptions, it's, it's way more productive to just do that work inside so that you don't have those interruptions, or it's way more productive to drive a bit to that road or that loop that you can hit without any, any interruptions. 
it's, it's a really, it, it is an important thing. And all of us know when you're doing some sort of, you know, steady state workout and then you stop and you stop for 30 seconds, less than that, five seconds. And you start going again. It's like a huge change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's, it makes it way easier. So there's, there's a lot to that. Um, I don't think you ruin the ride necessarily unless you're doing it habitually and frequently. Um, but it should be, I feel like a focal point of all of us to just minimize stops. And also the heart rate spike I have when I go into the gas station and have to watch my bike through the window is not, (laughs) my heart rate's way outside (laughs) of endurance. I just drag it in with me. Yeah. Do you really? (laughs) You really? Yeah. Yeah. In Tucson, I pretty much always do. Unless there's two of us, like if Russell Mm. and I are training down there, one will stay out with the bikes and the other one will run in. But for the most part, you just bring it in. And if they say no bikes and you just like, just carry it and it doesn't touch the ground, then. Yeah. <laughs> what can they do? <laughs> what are they going to so, do? You're like, this bike is, if I lose this, how am I going to get home? I'm like, you know. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> Strong move. That's great. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, hot take socks oh, go under your leg warmers. Yes. This is the only answer. <laughs> <laughs> Keegan's wrong. Multiple reasons. You do either Easier or. to take your leg warmers off while riding because you don't have to mm-hmm. deal with your socks. You just rip them off. True. Second, it just looks better. Um, what if your uh, socks are a yeah. contrasting color to your leg warmers? That's even, I think that's even worse. <laughs> oh, I think, oh no, I think it's way worse. That's like if you're wearing like a suit and then you have like white socks with the suit, like, no, you don't do that. And it's that, <laughs> that weird little section of white that you can see, unless it's like a different color suit. But if it's like a darker color suit, you, you can't do that because a little patch <laughs> of different color looks worse. Instead, what you do is instead you say, it's not a mistake. I'm owning this color, like change in this contrast by putting the sock over the top. That's what, that's what you have to do. I do agree though. You, you bring up good points, but if your socks contrast in color, let them stand on their own and don't make it look <laughs> like it was an oversight on your end. You have to own it. You have to make it a part of your look rather but than are you already making a them. mistake. If you have contrasting socks, I mean, yes, I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> to a certain, you know, yeah. But I don't want to put white leg warmers on if I have white socks. That would look even more weird. <laughs> Ew, white leg warmers. Exactly. Exactly. I think know. it depends which everyone has a more prominent logo. So if your leg warmer has a logo on the bottom, it needs to be on top. If mm. your leg warmer is just black, but your socks have a logo, they need to go on top. Oh, Maybe. this is another layer that I hadn't considered. Based. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the zippers. <laughs> if you have a zipper, the zipper will be horribly uncomfortable underneath. Like, yes. Yeah. Right? So yes, if if I had zipper leg warmers, there's no way that I would put them under my socks. If I had I zipper leg like, warmers, they're going underneath. I did that for like underneath. four years because people would have cost me for leaving my socks under my leg warmers. And I was like, but they're zippers. And I got <laughs> tired of just keep- <laughs> Who are you hanging out with? You know, just road nerds. (laughs) Yeah, just like road people. (laughs) Okay, if it's really, really cold outside and you're wearing tights and shoe covers, do the shoe covers go on top or beneath? I think it depends. If it's raining, I think the shoe covers should go underneath. Where is your consistency? (laughs) I've learned this. Let's make a Venn diagram of when. The water goes down your shoe covers. So the leg warmers keep the water from going inside or the tights. But if it's just cold, I think the shoe covers can go on top. I don't think it matters. But I think I've learned that the water is a big issue. It seeps down inside your shoe covers if your leg warmers are under, underneath. Wow. That's a good call. That's a good Pro point. Tips. Mm-hmm. 
Also, oh, I've please. never once done a ride with leg warmers and been like, oh, I can't wait to take my leg warmers off because I don't use like wetsuits for leg warmers. I just, yeah. I use ones that are like uh, the Rafa ones. They have those merino wool ones that um, are super comfortable. And if I need anything more than that, I'm wearing bib tights anyway. Like I'm wearing, I'm going to wear full tights. Yeah. You so, can always do the, I know it's kind of bad sometimes, but you just got to pull the arm warmers off and then you cool off and you can leave your leg warmers on. Oh, then, jail <laughs> immediately. Prison. <laughs> jail. Sometimes it's just easier though. You know? Yeah. I, I've I done it before. Simplicity. I've raced with my arm warmers on top of my sleeves because you can't get them back Same. up. And <laughs> Same. You never start that way, but that's not the way, the way you finish. We all make wow. mistakes. Speed yeah. is the priority. I think we can all yes. agree on that. Speed is the priority. Yes. So, <laughs> whatever gives speed. All right. Hot take. Fatter can be faster. I Going downhill. I thick, guess. Is quick. <laughs> yeah. thick is quick. Thick is quick. Thick is quick. Yeah. I mean, honestly, and if you're like a crit racer and you're racing flat crits, like if you have to, if you race in a way where you aren't having to accelerate your mass, and like you're kind of like smooth and you're doing like like the Pete attack move where Pete, he's either off the front or he's off the back and ready to use momentum to go off the front again. Mm-hmm. And that's like it. But really, like his speed is actually pretty consistent. It's just the field speed is variable. If he can somehow force a race into being in that sort of circumstance, then, yeah, like because if you're bigger, you might be able to carry more power like that, um, you know, that can be helpful. But I mean, look like as soon as a pitch comes in and as soon as that pitch starts to go steeper and steeper, it affects you once again, exponentially. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it depends on the sort like of racing you do, I guess. With body composition too, like a lot of riders lose sight of, um, how beneficial being just powerful is mm-hmm. of course, like discipline specific, but with that sometimes comes a specific body composition and that's okay. And, it might benefit you. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Hannah? Well, yeah, I think you guys took this or you all took this differently than I did. Cause my first thought was, well, under, under fueled is always slower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just depends, I guess what this hot take means by fatter. Uh, <laughs> if we're truly talking about just adding on layers of fat, then, yeah, on the downhill. But if we're talking about optimizing weight, lighter is not always faster. There's so many cyclists that just are, and it's because of social pressures coming from a lot of different directions. We think that we need to be like hyper light and we're malnourished, like straight up we're malnourished. And, and then we're trying to ask our bodies to do a ton of work and you have to fuel that work for sure. There's lots of like successful athletes podcast episodes we've recorded with athletes that were like, I thought that I was, you know, at my peak walk KG. And then, uh, I kept hearing you guys talk about carbs on the podcast. So I figured I'd try it out. And they're like, now I weigh five to 10 pounds more, but my, my power is just through the roof and my ability to sustain my powers through the roof or repeat it or do any of those things. So there are a lot of athletes that are just dwelling in a constantly malnourished state. Um, so yeah, in that case, yeah, it absolutely could be. Yeah. Think it's quick. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's good. Training on rollers is more effective than a static trainer. Can I take this one? Yeah, do it. I I disagree with this. So, because I do both. I prefer training on the rollers, but it is, if you think about it, it's taking cognitive load to some degree, even though I don't ever think about balancing on my rollers. I just, at this point, it's just all natural. 
but there's some portion of my brain that's working and my body that's working to balance. And otherwise in theory, I'd be able to just dedicate that to power and just holding my power target. So, but do you think that's a bad thing though? Yeah. I mean, if you're out on the road, it's kind of the same thing, right? Right. When are you ever racing or unless you're an esports person, like Mm -hmm. every, all your racing is done outside. So like a small amount of cognitive load on the rollers, maybe it's a good thing to not be able to hundred percent zone out and focus on the effort. Well, here's a counterpoint to that. If you were to just focus on training your power inside and you're able to achieve higher numbers, thus strain your system even higher, right? And assuming you're able to recover from it all, your indoor training could be more productive at raising power if you have zero distractions and it's just distilled and it's just focused on power. Um, in theory, I think that it could pay out. However, I think that the, the difference here is like, we're talking such a small fraction when you first ride rollers. I know it feels like crazy and overwhelming and like it's distracting you, but you get to the point where you never once think about it. And it's just, you're just riding just like when you're riding. Maybe that's different for us. I haven't ridden rollers since I was like 13 years old. So to me, it's like (laughs) riding a trainer, you know? Totally. Yeah. It's no different, but obviously if you're new to them, then it's going to take a lot more load. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just think but so I, much about athletes that focus on the expression of their fitness indoor versus outdoor. And I wonder if something like riding the rollers would help amend that a little bit um, to make it not feel like such a stark difference between riding outside and inside when they get to just like completely zone out and not really engage fully when they're indoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. But that's where I feel like rollers are kind of that interesting in between. Like, I feel like I would either pick outside or a static trainer. The rollers are, to me, kind of a almost an awkward in between where you're not quite getting the benefit of either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a, you have to have rollers, number one, that can allow you to hit the power targets that you're doing, right? Because if mm-hmm. you're just riding the rollers and you're calling that like a substitute for a workout that has structure that you'd otherwise be doing, then no, like it's not as productive. You need to be hitting your power targets still. So, um, I think they're like a great way rollers, to, you can't do them. So. They're a great way to warm up though. Sometimes even like if you're about to do a cold ride or like a rainy ride where you want to do the workout outside, you can warm up on the rollers and then just jet outside and then come back in and then you're not having like set up your bike on a trainer. If you don't have like an indoor bike or a separate bike for the trainer or something. I feel so validated right now. (laughs) (laughs) Or backwards of that. Also warm back up after. Yes. Yeah. Outside. Yeah. It's quicker. Honestly, it's faster to warm up on the rollers than it is to get in the shower or anything else. Like you instantly get so hot. You leave all your stuff on and just hop on the rollers in the garage. I love this. Because those first – 10 to 15 minutes outside when it's really cold and you're not warmed up yet. It's just brutal. So mm-hmm. I'm so happy to hear that someone else warms up on the rollers a little you bit. You have they to be <laughs> extremely careful though, because if you sweat, just forget it. Don't even leave <laughs> the rollers then. <laughs> yeah. Cause then you're going to absolutely freeze and you go outside. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love uh, personally, I would much rather ride the rollers and I'm training inside. And, and once again, like I think that my rollers can hold like 850 Watts or a thousand Watts or something. So that's plenty for the workouts that I'm doing. Um, and in those cases, like I far prefer doing them on the rollers. It's just more enjoyable for me, more engaging. And I haven't noticed any Delta between what I can do on those versus a stationary trainer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just have basic rollers or you can't hit your power targets, don't do it. Nice. All right. Hot, hot take. Everyone would be a better athlete if they went to therapy. <laughs> yes. Everyone would be a better person if they went yeah. to therapy. <laughs> it's complicated. I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody for that one. Yeah. It's pretty individual. Yeah. Some people, honestly, like their productive form of therapy is going to be really different than traditional therapy, you know? Maybe your therapy is just actually being an athlete too. Yeah. It, it, it varies for sure. Sometimes you just need to go do hard stuff. (laughs) I would change, I would change this to everyone would be a better athlete if everyone focused on their mental and emotional health. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. I agree with that. All right. Hot take. We need a better metric for measuring fitness than Watts per kg or FTP. Uh, trainer has that. It's called your progression levels. <laughs> Plug. Yes. Nailed it. <laughs> Done. All right. Podcast is over. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, progression levels are really cool. They're a real time representation of where your fitness at is at per zone or per, per system. Um, pretty cool. And it's, changes every time you do a workout or miss a workout it's dynamic it's awesome go to trainerroad.com sign up check it out 10 out of 10, out of 10 ivy yeah i'm so turns sorry you, it, <laughs> it turns you into a video game character it's pretty sweet you can track your stats i dig it so all right oh, oh gosh, yikes y'all hot take there's nothing wrong with wearing your bibs six to eight times before washing them fine for me yo mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess if you like saddle sores. Yeah. What in the world I mean, this is here? a joke, right? There's no, just I don't no know. Way. I don't think it was. There's just no way. I wouldn't be surprised if it's real. Like, there are okay. people that have said that they just like, when they ride indoors, they just like take their bibs off and hang them on the bars. And then they just like, and they do it for a week. Yeah. If you wear some bibs in a race and then the podium's an hour later, if you're not wearing another set of bibs for the podium, I don't even know what you're doing. So six to eight times is like, I can't even handle it. You're going to get saddle sores. Like, I don't know how you would not. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're like cleaning them with rubbing alcohol or something. <sighs> but and no. even six to eight times is too much for that. Like, I'll, that's what I do when I'm like doing little bike pack trips or whatever. You just alcohol them and tear them inside out and they're clean enough, you know, but. Yeah, that's yeah, only sink, for a few days. Sink wash them, right? Like or sink wash if you if you can dry them. Like sometimes drying is hard, right? Yeah, but. I don't know. Bibs to me are still like. I mean, I know that sometimes when you're bike packing, you really can't. But like when I have bike packed, that's been the only new pair of clothing I've brought. Like rewear the same jersey, but I bring multiple sets of bibs. Same, or I'll get like intel about. Um, if we'll have access to like running fresh water and if I'll yeah. be able to like clean, like hand wash a pair. Yeah. But mm-hmm. yeah, same wash your bibs y'all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> doctor, if you're bike packing, uh, Dr. Bronner's bar of soap that you can use that they have, like it's like a mm-hmm. universal soap. It's, uh, and then it's soap that also is biodegradable. So you can use it in like a lake or anything else like that. And you don't have to feel bad about it. Uh, but use that. And then after that, you wrap up your bibs in a towel like really tight, you roll them up in a towel. And then by the, and then after that it sucks a bunch of moisture out. And by the morning, if you have clammy bibs, it's not the most pleasant thing in the world, but at least they're clean. 
Like, mm-hmm. and I'd rather have dry doing... bibs. Oh, you'd have dry. I'd rather just use. That's why I just use alcohol, man. I can't have wet bibs. It's disgusting. It feels so <laughs> gross. <and> it's cold. <laughs> so you have and like I've... um the pre like single alcohol wipes, and do you just like no? I just use like hand sanitizer. Oh, okay. <laughs> This is wild. This is also <laughs> really weird. It cleans everything. Like everything's. De- I mean, it might not be like super clean, but I bet, I bet you it's like clean. I bet you it's cleaner than washing them in like a flowing creek. It That's might, a tricky part, it, right? Yeah, but it might be. But using- I, I feel like this is one of those moments where you're Keegan, so no one's gonna call you out because you're so fast <laughs> that anything you do is cool. But I'm just gonna be honest. This is weird. <laughs> I, I just don't like wet I don't like wet bibs so I, if I have the choice if I have time to wash them and they have time to dry and it's warm enough then I will wash them but there's not always that time and place wow. if it's a flowing so, river but you're using soap I bet you get them cleaner I maybe you kill off a lot of stuff that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're fully clean so, yeah I don't know you know you, gotta, you just as long as you do something, just don't wear them over and over without doing something. I guess the main that's, takeaway that's is don't takeaway. ride, don't ride close to Keegan if you're bikepacking. So I know all of us I, with Russell and Ryan and we all did the same thing. So it's all a, uh, as long as you're on the same program, it doesn't matter what you do. As long as nope, everybody nope. is stinky. It's yeah. yeah. It's fine. Yeah. And on the stinky note, just to be clear, doing something is not like perfume or Febreze. That's, oh, yeah, that's not what we're talking don't about. Layer it. <laughs> you could lie don't solid, it. though. That would probably yeah. work. I mean, to Keegan's point, I have like taken wipe baths. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. it, so like where you just use baby wipes and you wipe yourself off and clean up like that. You, you aren't, you aren't the cleanest you've ever been, but it does something. Better than no clean. Better than no clean. Yeah. Yeah. I see. What John, you I thought you were talking about like, Clorox, Clorox wipes or something. <laughs> no, yeah. finish all red and blotchy. No, yeah. no. <laughs> Any saddle sores between you, Russell, and Ryan from that trip? I don't know about them, but I, I didn't. I don't. I didn't get any. There we go. Yeah. All right. Maybe we're missing right. the key secret. I feel more confused sanitizer. than I was yeah. when I started that question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Gravel tires with big lugs make no sense unless you're riding very muddy roads. I'm going to flip this and say that slick tires also make sense for muddy roads. Mm-hmm. Slick tires do make sense for muddy roads. Can't pack up if you don't have any knobs. Oh, it's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. If you get, if you get, if the mud is thick and it packs into the knobs, you might as well have a slick. And the worst part mm-hmm. is, is that you have a, a slick that you're counting on not being a slick. So then you're like, you have this weird dissonance between like what your tire should be doing and what it's actually doing. And that's when mm-hmm. it causes mistakes. But if it's are you talking mud, like, then you can have your knobs. Are you yeah. talking like a fully slick, like road tire, or like a file tread? Either one. Okay. There's not really any difference at that point. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, to, to prove this, cause this is N equals one and thusly of course proves the entire thing to be true. Um, <laughs> but on a gravel ride last year, in the snow and like just nasty sloppy mud. Um, but it was the sort of mud that packs up. I was riding on Maxis refuses or no velocitas, mm. which are just like a textured slick. Like they're not, mm. they're not a file tread. They're just like a textured slick. And I was riding those. And then we had other people that were riding with like WTBs, um, uh, specialized tracer. I think it is. And a few other ones, they all had knobs and they were sliding around even more than, more than I was actually. 
I just mm-hmm. had a big surface area with a slick and it was actually better in the sloppy mud than a narrower spiky tire. But if it's really like sloppy, wet mud, like watery mud, then I think that taller knobs are better. But narrower tire, like less uh, volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. All right. Uh, Someone wrote in, commuting in jeans to work on my e-bike does not make me less of a person. (laughs) I agree with this hot take. I love that you commute in your jeans, and I love that you ride an e-bike. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's fine. Keegan's a fan of e-bike. I love my e-bike. I might go ride it today, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. They liberate you. An e-bike, you can do whatever you want on it, and it's fine. Like, you can break Snow all rules. whatever cycling rules, unwritten rules exist. You can break them all because you're on an e-bike. You can put your socks on top of your leg warmers if you want. <laughs> <laughs> you can tuck your jeans into your socks if you want. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> 100%. Um, okay. I'll take one hour in the weight room is worth more than two hours in zone one or two or base. Hannah, what do you think? Well, it's just not even remotely the same. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you could say that one hour in the weight room makes you more tired than two hours at in base zone one, two, but they're just, it's not the same. So you, one is not even, one isn't worth more than the other, vice versa, either probably direction. more, probably more TSS, if that's what they're going for. Like, mm-hmm. like you said, it's like going to make you more sore and more tired, but. About it. Imagine if bikes were actually a competition to see who could get more fatigued. Like <laughs> that's not the point. The point isn't to like make yourself more fatigued. The point is to get faster. It'd be yeah. a fun competition though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd yes. be into that. <laughs> I know you did 24 hours in the old Pueblo. I think you win that one, uh, across the board with that effort. So, yeah, I think training is that way for some people though, mm-hmm. like to look totally. for and seek the way to get the most bang for their buck in the most amount of time or in the smallest amount of time. Um, black people them. like CrossFit or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like you could take that even a step further. I feel like in many ways, fatigue is just glorified in life. So I feel like mm-hmm. everyone's always competing of like, Oh, I'm so exhausted. Or, oh, I'm so busy. Like it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Like it, People think that it makes them seem, I don't know, important. I'm not sure, but it More seems accomplished. like, yeah, yeah, it's something mm-hmm. we definitely glorify. Well. Something I've noticed with you pro athletes is that compared to amateurs is amateurs chase fatigue as if that's the goal. Yet pro athletes do everything they can to remove fatigue. Like, like you're doing everything to lessen fatigue Cause you're trying to execute your training and then trying to set yourself up to be able to adapt from it, you know, like, mm-hmm. and that's, I think a big marked difference between an amateur and like an amateur goes and does yard work. And they're like, I just did a hard workout and I did this. This is awesome. I'm super tired. I'm going to get better. Like step back and think about that. It makes zero sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not productive for training. Pros do everything they can to, to avoid fatigue. Uh, of course, never compromising their workout but their workout isn't about achieving fatigue. It's about achieving objectives and they check those boxes, you know? So. Well, I feel like that goes even into things like just because the workout was harder doesn't mean it was better. And by those things, I mean Mm -hmm. like doing an indoor workout without a fan, like that made (laughs) it significantly (laughs) harder, but it did not make you better. Unless you want to be heat adapted, I guess. Right. And if that's the goal, 
that's a totally different and even then different goal. your goal isn't to make it hard then your goal is to do something easy but expose yourself to a lot of heat right so once again it's still yeah. the goal is never like just to like make it hard the goal is to be specific about it otherwise we'd all just tell everybody to ride really hard all the time yeah i'm thinking of friends that i ride with that uh pride themselves on never having drink mix like, we don't ride with drink mix you don't need yeah. that and it's just like totally. weird tough guy stuff i don't get it to see yeah. who can be the most i get it i used to do that i used to not eat any, or really drink anything unless the ride was longer than three hours mm-hmm. oh time. my gosh <laughs> yeah but it's like super common really common it is yeah yep. and then you're like oh eventually like Someone tells you and you're like, no, this is dumb. And eventually you try it and you're like, oh, this is actually kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. I don't feel <laughs> <as> tired. <laughs> I can keep going. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing, like when someone has an easy workout, sometimes they'll look at it and scoff. And it's like you have an easy workout because it's going to make you better for future workouts, not because you're incapable of doing something harder. It's, it's That's really just, important. Yeah. yeah. Same thing wow. applies to like a, a easy week or mm-hmm. even taking weeks off in the same, same way. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Hannah. Hannah's bringing all the hot takes. We don't even <laughs> need to post anything <laughs> next time. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> all right. This one's interesting. VO2 max workouts are better without a power meter. This is super interesting to me because RPE when applied to VO2 max already when that system is so specific and meets such a specific need to do so via RPE, I don't think I would do so successfully. Yeah. What do you guys I know think? what yeah. this one's getting at. This one's getting at the fact that the point is to achieve peak aerobic uptake. And they're saying in their mind that like, well, you may reach that differently on different days and you can tell when you reach it because it's really, really hard. But I would counter that with saying that like, VO2 max building VO2 max effectively is actually like, you know, quite scalpeled rather than butter knives. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is something that if you can do it precisely, I think that we all know that when you're trying to hold a power target on your five by five VO2 intervals, if you weren't trying to hold that power target, you would not ride as hard as you need to otherwise. Right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like it, cause it feels terrible and then you keep going and you have to go harder than that. And that's like, that's the thing about reaching peak aerobic uptake. Like you can reach it. You could reach peak aerobic uptake by riding Z1, just ride it long enough. And like, eventually you're going to hit it. Like, I don't know how many days it's going to take, but so this is why I think it's, and then chances are you'll also just be spending, if you're really measuring peak aerobic uptake, if you're doing it with power, you'll be spending less time getting more benefit for what you're trying to do than just mm-hmm. relying on effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Predictable, and, I guess, for me to be on that side of the fence. But yeah. <laughs> well, and power should be motivating too. At least that's yes. how. So I've tried um, just for fun. Like if I have six VO2 efforts, I'll do the first five staring at the power meter and then do the six not looking at it just out of curiosity. And for me, it's always been within five watts. Um, on that sixth one, even without it, but I was a whole lot more motivated. I feel like when I was staring at that number the whole time, you're also I, super well calibrated too. Like, yeah, you're not, there's definitely bias involved in that such a task, bro, <laughs> versus a, a, like average people. They like go out and they're like, I don't know if this is 100 or 300 Watts, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I'm still yeah. like, 
to Hannah's point too, like taking, not using it at the very end, I think like I'll do that sometimes if the power starts to drop off and I start to crack, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to look at it. I'm just going to go flat out and we're going to see how close I can get. So I think it does work sometimes because if you're in your power and you're like, if you're not quite hitting your power target, it's at the end of like five by fives or whatever it might be. You're like, all right, we're just going to turn it to the time screen and we're just going to go as hard as I can. So I think it does work sometimes because when you start to drop below your power target, you start to get like demotivated. And Mm -hmm. if you don't know, then ignorance is bliss and you just go flat out. So, but I do like, it's always best to start with power. So otherwise you're not going to go hard enough or you're going to go too hard. So the key, the, the Keegan time screen, you mentioned that like a few months ago on a podcast and it's been so good for me. Uh, (laughs) it's great for racing because I have to start off Uh with power and time and then other stuff and then eventually i'll go to i'll switch it to only time and then you're just racing there's you just go as hard as you can or whatever sometimes you don't want to know what you have to do especially if you had power targets going in and you know you have to go harder than that or whatever mm-hmm. you just gonna have to do what it takes so it's a nice screen to have so feature your, request your for back. head unit manufacturers i don't know why they don't do this you should be able to fully <clears throat> customize a screen because i think keegan would love to have a screen that says like like not even the time screen, but he swipes over and it's just like words that he has typed in that he wants to have on display. Like, <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Instead right? of having to write it on my handlebars or whatever. <laughs> yes, because you write it on your bars, yeah. you know? And like, yeah. I, it would be really helpful in some races just to have whatever your mantra is or anything else, just swipe over to that thing for a while and be like, I just well, need you to could look at set, that. You could set a yeah. timer that comes up every so often that reads, because on the Garmin I wrote like, eat idiot or whatever. And <laughs> every like 20 or 30 minutes. So you could set like something else that's on an alternate time schedule to give you motivation, I guess, if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah, you could. I do agree that sometimes when, if power, if you aren't able to meet re- meet your power targets and sometimes it can get demotivating <clears throat> what I do to judge or to mess to adjust that. I can usually tell from the interval before that I'm not going to be able to do the next one. I still try. I still go out there, but if I can't, then I kind of like, just like with trainer roads workout player, you know, I'll like drop down the intensity dot, 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 and like hit the minus button 5%. I'll be like, all right, I'm going to drop it 10 Watts and that's going to be my new target. Um, and I'll just try to stay with, you know, it may be 10 Watts lower than my, than my other target or 20 Watts or whatever it is, but at least I still just give myself a target because the last thing I want to do is get so frustrated with not holding my target that I quit. Like I Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. Um, it's, it's better to at least just hold less than, than what you were doing and to get that done in most cases. Now, granted, if you're truly feeling terrible, like you're getting sick or something like that, sometimes you just go home. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Fill out. Fill in your workout survey afterward and it'll say like, why, uh, what happened during the workout? And you'll be able to say why. And that's really important to be able to fill that out because then adaptive training will be like, I know what's going on. This mm-hmm. is what needs to happen for your next workout. So yeah. Good advice y'all. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is one of those unspoken rules that Hannah's going <laughs> to pop off about for sure. Arrow bar- <laughs> Aero bars don't belong on bikes with knobby tires. It's not a rule, man. <laughs> do you cool you know was, i guess <laughs> I don't know. you don't like what it do you think, i mean i think you can do whatever you want like once things start in imp- i don't know like i don't really like it when people are in a group in their arrow bars now granted i guess that's an unspoken rule but it feels somewhat <laughs> unsafe um and especially i mean that maybe i don't know i'd be curious what keegan thinks too because it is different i feel like 
if Keegan's in a group with all the other pro men, he knows where their ability levels lie. If I'm in a gravel race and I'm with an amateur man who's in his arrow bars in a group with me, I have no idea if he's practiced mm-hmm. in them. I don't know this person. I have, I just don't know. Um, and so that's, yeah, no, I, yeah, I fully agree. I really just think they shouldn't like promoters shouldn't leave it up to individuals. I think they should just say no arrow bars and make it so simple. Yeah. And so easy for everyone. Like you don't, no one needs them. Like I know, mm-hmm. I don't know. It'd just be nice if they just said no arrow bars or no, no extensions past your hoods or whatever they want mm-hmm. to say. I think it would be, a very this goes back to your whole like the unspoken rules it's like there was a email chain trying from the for men's race unbound last year trying to get us all to not use mm-hmm. arrow bars and then it was like it's like well if someone wants to use them then it's like well, well i want to use them and then he wants to use them and like it just becomes a i don't know it's weird if i did whereas the promoters just said no arrow bars it'd be a really simple thing but i definitely don't think it's safe like there was a rider one of the women at uh Big Sugar had arrow bars in the front, and there was like a crosswind, and she was trying to ride her arrow bars like in the very front of the bunch. Maybe you know who I'm talking about. And she was like all over the place, like swerving in and out. And it just is like not cool. It's like, I don't know what you're trying to do in these up here. Like just sit in the wheels instead of taking wind in your arrow bars. Like you can work smarter, not harder, and not risk crashing out the entire bunch. Also, if you, uh, so. if I feel like the main thing in terms of personal response, because you can do whatever you want, I don't care, uh, whatever it is. But if personal responsibility, if you're going to put them on your bike, you need to be really comfortable with them. <clears throat> like watch a, watch a pro triathlete riding the arrow bars in brutal crosswinds and they are not going to be flopping all over the place. Like no. they're really good at holding that position because they've dialed in a good position and they're used to it <clears throat> and they know how to hold their, the tension in their body when they're in those arrow bars. So I just think you have to know how to use it. I think a big danger comes in when people are put these new things on their bike and they aren't used to them and they put them on for race day and it causes really sketchy situations. Yeah. Not necessary. Yeah. I, I think what the, the shootout in Tucson Keegan, like you'll have Ben Hoffman show <clears throat> up and Sam Wong and all these riders and yeah, they're, I mean, they're they, in their aero bars at times. Yeah. They try not to fun. use them a lot just cause it's, like they just can roll off from the group. Like you'll be full gas sitting on their wheel. So they try not to use them a lot, but they do sometimes. And I never feel unsafe with them. There's a few triathletes that have like, Oh, they have arrow bars. I'm going to ride in mine. And then they are not safe riding in them. So I think you just need to know, you know, and they spend so much time and I'm like, well, I'll ride with Ben and he'll spend, you know, hours in those things. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and it's not a, yeah. like, if you're not safe riding your air bars, that's not a knock. It's just, you probably haven't spent as much time as a professional triathlete or TT specialist or something like, yeah, how it goes. Right. I've never ridden in them. I wouldn't feel safe riding on them, you know? So, and like Keegan mentioned with, um, I mean, it doesn't with factors like the wind or off-road racing with the terrain, like it doesn't matter how much time you spend in the aero bars. There might be some, other influencing factors that are preventing you from riding safely in them that you just mm-hmm. can't control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on gravel, like sometimes you can't always see, especially if you're in the bunch, you can't see if there's holes in the road or if oh the gosh. gravel all of a sudden gets loose, or maybe there's a turn and you weren't staring at your Garmin to know that you have to turn. Like, I don't know. I just don't think it's, it's that safe. And it Sorry, also just I, looks dumb. I don't want to beat a but, dead horse with this. <laughs> I don't want to beat a dead horse with this one, but like, the position that the arrow bars put you in, you need to have a certain level of familiarity to know if you're safe in that position, if it's a safe position. 
Um, <clears throat> you'll notice a lot of compromised positions if you look at athletes that are following UCI regulations. And what I mean by that is like they can't see down the road when they're in their position. Um, they're in a spot where they actually can't handle their bike well. And it's just simply because of the weird weight distribution that happens because they're trying to fall within UCI guidelines. If you're putting the, you don't have UCI guidelines to worry about if you have knobby tires, uh, in this case. So you want to do a position that allows you to be able to look down the road and, and, and still be able to like get out of your position and into the other position very quickly and naturally, um, instead of having your shoulders and elbows so low that you feel like you have to do like a push up to get to the point where you can get to your grips, like you might want to raise them up a bit more. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really tricky. Also, I see a lot of people put their arrow bars on so that their arms are parallel to the ground, um, which sometimes can make you feel like you're a bit more in control, but it typically creates a further drop and even aerodynamically, it's not that fast. Like you want to raise your hands up closer to close off the chest space in between the, the space in between your hands and your head anyway. Um, but you just really have to test that stuff out. Like, uh, you know, it's arrow positions are really hard. Um, really, really hard to dial in. Triathlon John has entered the chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Kind of rhymes. Triathlon John. Uh oh. <laughs> Should we air the, the conversation we were having before we went on air? Yeah. Uh, that would be bad. Anyways, yeah, keep going. Okay. Uh, hot take a good result in a crit is 90% luck. I totally disagree with this. <laughs> I disagree. Yeah. Like even yeah. if you, uh, find yourself like in a break that ends up, you know, staying away, uh, you're still, you still make a conscious decision to like follow someone's wheel or like follow a move. It's not lucky that you put yourself in that position. Um, mm-hmm. there might've been, make your own luck. yeah, yeah. You, if this implies that, you know, someone I've never seen someone just complicitly like, yeah, I don't know. I just, rode my way up to winning, you know, like it's all very deliberate. It's so, especially with crit racing, it's not, it's not something that's a very, uh, individualized effort where you're just like pacing and it works out sometimes. Like it's so reactive and so deliberate. Um, I don't, I don't think that, uh, there's much luck with a good crit result. Coming in with another hot take here. Oh boy. <laughs> Gravel racing involves more luck than crit racing. Mm. That's valid. Maybe. I agree. Oh, <laughs> I also think with gravel racing, I think people claim there's a lot of luck in like not flatting and tire choices and all that. But I also think like it goes back to like making your own luck. Like if you run tires that are thinner and are more likely to flat and you flat, then you can't really blame luck because you gambled on poor choices. And maybe, maybe you're more, maybe you're speaking in the sense of like you happened, like in the women's race, it's like so different because you're not really racing your own race. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like you can also like, like, I don't know, find like, Oh, maybe you end up with a good group and maybe that's, maybe that's lucky, but maybe you worked harder to get there than someone else. So you like, you kind of risked, getting in that group. I don't know. I, I've never done that. That's a whole different situation. So yeah. I can't really speak to it too much, but I feel like there's a little bit of both there as well. But Or you drop someone from the group and then a man pulls them back to the group. Right. They get lucky because someone, that, someone a man got dropped and he towed them back up. 
So I, mm. yeah, I, I do see that. It's crazy. I, I, f- I feel like <laughs> I feel bad for you guys to deal with that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, uh, question submitter. Uh, you seem pretty sour on this one. I don't know if you're the one that like, you know, has fallen on the other 10%, you know, like, <laughs> and you feel like you're missing out on all the luck or what's going on, but it's not luck. Uh, like I, I agree with Keegan, but there is an element of you have to. So Keegan just said you make your own luck. You have to anticipate all the circumstances that could happen and put yourself in a spot to take advantage of mm-hmm. quote, good luck. And that's just, that's just you doing your homework and that costs fitness. It's not. So it's, I don't think that it's just pure luck that costs a lot of fitness and a lot of like, you know, making bets at different times in the race that you don't know are going to pay off, but well, you go for it anyway. And you know? strategy, like you might not have the highest Watts in the sprint, but being in the right spot to take advantage of a lead out or have a clear run at it, that's strategy. That's not luck. It's 100%. Also, yeah. yeah, like a team, like mm-hmm. a team doesn't mean that you're lucky. Like you've worked or built the team or done whatever you need to, to be able to work toward achieving that result. doesn't mean it's luck. Like sure. I, I maybe what this is getting at is that crit racing in particular, it isn't the fittest person that always wins. Uh, but that's bike racing also, uh, mm-hmm. unless you're like doing like, you know, climb time trials or something, I don't know, but like, it isn't always the fittest person that wins. And that's part of what makes bike racing so cool. Otherwise we'd all just be able to decide the results of a race with the watt KG chart or chart before the ha- beforehand. <laughs> so that's the cool part of it, you know, but you can't get sour when other people win and you feel like you're fitter than them. Can't get sour. You need to take ownership and learn. So mm-hmm. make yeah. some luck for yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Bodyweight exercises are an acceptable substitution for traditional weight training. This is interesting. And another one of those ones where it depends upon your goals, right? Mm-hmm. Like if your goal is just to create some stability so that you feel better on the bike or to do like a little bit of injury prevention, you might be able to do those things with just body weight. But as a substitution for traditional weight training, I'd say kind of, because I guess in theory you could get the same effect if you were to do like, you know, like 50 bodyweight squats instead of a few weighted squats. It's still not going to be the same on like stress on your bones and all that, but maybe you can get a similar, somewhat similar response. I don't know. I'm, I don't know enough about this stuff to really answer. I wish Chad was here. <laughs> I think, okay. think bodyweight exercises are great for injury prevention. And then even in the realm of like plyometrics, you can do a lot of jumping stuff with body weight. But if you're searching for strength or hypertrophy gains, most likely you have to add weight. Like if you're, when you're going for something like hypertrophy, like 10 reps needs to be hard. And Mm -hmm. after a few weeks of body weight exercises, 10 reps probably will not be hard. But then you can throw in stuff like bands and Mm -hmm. other things. Yeah. To make body weight Does that count harder? as body so weight still? Because that, that involves equipment. I, I mean, you can get really creative. Like you can do great things like pistol squats, but you're you are limited. Yeah. I think uh, I'm gonna build another hot take off of this hot take, but us and other people in cycling that are authorities, we should do a better job of encouraging body weight training. Because I think yeah. a lot of athletes that don't do strength training, they are 
paralyzed by the intimidating nature of like Olympic weightlifting and just like going to a gym and walking up to a bunch of meatheads and just being like, Hey, can I use this rack? And then like stacking all the weights onto the bar and you're going to be clumsy with it and you're terrified of dropping it. And there's a lot of intimidating factors to like standard traditional Olympic weightlifting. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of cyclists and understandably, I'm not saying it's a fault, like you're intimidated by that. So you just don't do it when really you'd be way better off if you just started off with doing like some basic body weight exercises um, and, and working up from there at plug again, dialed health. He has fantastic body, uh, body weight strength training exercises mm-hmm. for cyclists. You should go check them out. Um, and you can find them on Instagram or, or go to his site dialedhealth.com and they're really good. And they're, I do them. And if your goal once again is fatigue, you will be fatigued. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they absolutely thrash you. You'll have doms. So, all right. Watts per CDA is more important for most riders than Watts per KD, KG. Sorry. So CDA coefficient of aerodynamic drag. John, what do you think about this one? Uh, no, if you ride in groups, because if you ride in a group, your CDA doesn't matter that much. Like Mm -hmm. if I'm behind a bunch of people and I'm in like an air pocket where I'm drafting a ton, I could have the best CDA or like a really bad CDA. And it's not going to make that big of a difference because I might even be in like a negative pressure zone, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really not having a profound effect. Uh, that's assuming I'm riding in a group, but if I'm not riding in groups often, uh, and I'm riding above 13 miles an hour often, then yeah. Like, and if I'm like a breakaway specialist in flat crits, yeah, your Watts per CDA matters a ton and your Watts per KG doesn't matter. But overall I disagree with his generalization for cyclists. I think that Watt KG does matter more often than Watts per CDA. Mm-hmm. Hannah, what do you think? Yeah, it's a hard, I mean, it, it just depends so much. So that's a hard, hot take for me to like take as mm-hmm. this is always true or this is always false because especially if you're on a high, a climbing intensive course, CDA is not going to matter as much as watts per kg, but if it's flat, et cetera, et cetera. So right. it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Keegan, do you think that changes for off-road as well? Yeah. I mean, you could also dig into like putting power down when it's rough mm-hmm. and like reading the terrain. And I was, there's I, overall, I would agree with John that the Watts per kilo is more important than CDA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one, oversized pulley wheels are a waste of money. Uh, <laughs> I mean, strong you probably spend your money better elsewhere, <laughs> I guess. How much are the average oversized pulley in, in terms of cost? I'll yeah. look it up as we continue the conversation. Hannah, do you have feelings on this? I mean, I don't think they're a waste of money, but I also will admit I don't actually know how much they cost. So I think ones that are like ceramic and that actually are probably worth putting on are yeah. they're probably at least three hundred bucks. In which oh, case no, you could probably spend that quite money. wrong. Six hundred. <laughs> Six hundred? Okay. So you can spend that money a lot better places. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I mean, like they are helpful. So if you're needing 1% or, then you yeah, know, but, then um, it's worth it. But yeah. depends if you need that 1%. Mm-hmm. I have so, I have such strong opinions on this one. Can I go? 
Yeah, this let her like, uh, So like, <laughs> go I, think, I think it's three, yeah, let the dog off. I think it's <laughs> three to 10 watts, I think is what you can expect to save with these. I, I don't believe the 10 watts thing. That would be huge. Like it's massive. That would be massive. Um, but let's just say it's 10 watts. It's being tested on chains in optimal conditions. Once you get a chain dirty, you get any sort of grime on it. Once you get it into any sort of even road racing scenario, unless you're on the track, even then when you're on the track, you start to like, it, it breaks down and stuff like that. As soon as you get dust on there, this is what drives me nuts about drivetrain efficiencies is everyone's judging it on a totally unrealistic expectation of like laboratory conditions when in reality your chain gets dirty. And so whatever, maybe you had a benefit for the first 15 minutes of a ride, first five minutes of a ride. If it was a road ride, if it's a gravel ride, you had a benefit for the first 30 seconds. I don't know. But like after that, I question if the effectiveness of oversized pulleys is actually as pronounced when you have a chain that is in normal circumstances, not laboratory circumstances. And like keeping your drivetrain aligned well, like paying attention to making sure you're like always keeping a straight chain. And maybe that means changing chainring sizes and whatnot. Like that's going to have a bigger effect on drivetrain efficiency than like the size of your pulleys. Yeah, mm-hmm. I completely agree. Like so it's a really easier ways to get that speed. Yeah, it's like a yeah, it's a tricky spot. But the the same thing is this isn't just targeted at pulley wheels. This is just like in general when you're making these sort of like marginal gains, we should all step back and be like, does this actually align with the circumstances that I'll have on race day? Like like for example, if you're going for this crazy aero skin suit, but you never actually see wind because you're always riding in a group, is it really worth spending all that money on it? Like, do you need to buy the aero bike or like the stem that integrates all your cables if they actually never see the wind? Like, yeah, but maybe they look sick, you know? It, exactly. And it feels good. They cool. go for it. I dig yeah. it. Yeah, I can look, understand. Aero bikes are fun. Look fast. good, feel good, <laughs> race good. That's right. It's true. It's true. My, I live by that motto look pro, go slow. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, hot take Pigcock is going to podium at the 2023 Tour de France. I don't know no. about this. No. My my brain's too full of memes to follow men's pro cycling, unfortunately. <laughs> so I can't say. I don't know that he really would want, I don't know if he wants to. I don't know if he can time trial. I, there's a lot of unknowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I don't think it's, he'd have to really That's a weird it. hot take. I don't like this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, it's too I don't think so. Like, it take it takes so much to like to get to a grand tour podium so much like you have to design your entire year for years to get to that point this isn't yeah, something that where probably means like, he'd win less like he'd have to focus on that and he probably wouldn't race mountain bikes and he probably couldn't race as much other stuff mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. he doesn't want to do that mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. like i don't think people realize how much work it takes to to focus on that one grand tour like it is your life you know oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's crazy Thanks. All right. Last one. It's pretty biting. Uh, mountain bikers are sad. They aren't the cool kids anymore. That's why they low key hate on gravel. <laughs> First <Ouch>. of all, <laughs> we are the cool kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we aren't the ones complaining about attacking in feed zones. So we're by default, you know, not as, not as, not as lame. I right? am. A, so. I, I am a gravel racer now. So. <laughs> oh, so. dare. Wow. Don't you? I'm not going to argue with it, you know? Oh, man. Betraying your roots, where you came from. 
What has happened? I'm still a, I'm a mountain bike racer too. Eh, call yourself a gravel racer. I don't know about that. I can do both. <laughs> I think you've proven that you can do both. I, yeah. Yes. Mountain bike racer, <laughs> gravel racer. You seem to do fine with both. Yeah. 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 You yeah. call yourself. So if somebody says, hey, nice to meet you, Keegan, and they have no clue who you are, would you call yourself a gravel racer, a mountain bike racer, or bike racer? I would call them an off-road racer. I was going to say, I'll probably an off-road racer. I will say that I was like called a gravel racer when I was in Australia for Road Worlds oh, multiple times, like doing interviews and stuff. I was like, they're the gravel racer from the USA. Oh, gosh. When they interviewed mm-hmm. me. So I guess it like, oh. maybe depends on uh, where you, yeah, what you know. I guess I don't sometimes know. it's nice to use terms like off-road to people that don't race bikes too that want to understand what you're doing and if you say cycle cross or gravel they're they're like <laughs> what yeah and, if you and say then you're like then they're like oh you do red bull rampage like, yeah, yeah they just they that. can they can yeah. make it up whatever you know? <laughs> they, they pick whatever yeah. yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're stuck believe. like at the checkout yeah. at the grocery store explaining like how to dismount <laughs> your bike, or, you know, <laughs> and how you hop over plywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like it's really serious. Bike? I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you run with your bicycle on your shoulder instead of riding yeah. it. Yeah. At least like at the grocery <laughs> store, you can eventually escape. The real yeah. bad one is when you're stuck on the airplane explaining. Oh this. no. <laughs> Uh, and you explain that you're flying to a bike race and they're like, cool, what's, what's your time? Yeah. I wonder, how much does your bike weigh? And you're like, what? Or even an X, <laughs> even like for a world cup XCO, how many miles is it? Oh, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so great. All right. Well, um, one last honorable mention that someone submitted, <laughs> Black mold in your bottle is where all the flavor is at. Hot take. Yikes. <laughs> Y'all wash your water bottles. Probably I'm the same person. I'm that saying that if Keegan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I bet you agree with this too, Keegan, since you don't like to wash your chamois. So. That's disgusting. No, I bleach my bottles <laughs> or I throw them away. I see one bit of mold and they either get bleached or they get, they get tossed. Oh, yeah. man. Good thought. job. I'm proud of you. I wasn't sure after the alcohol chamois situation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's gross. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Hannah, Keegan, thanks for jumping in. We appreciate you. Um, Wherever you're listening to this podcast, make sure to rate us, uh, like, and subscribe on YouTube. And if you haven't tried Trainer Road, make sure to check it out. TrainerRoad.com. Best way to get faster. All right. Thanks, y'all. See you next time. Thanks. Bye. See you.